I'm Jonathan Mosin and this is Mosin at Large, the show that's got the blind community talking. And on the show today, Mosin at Large is going podcast only. What will the Apple Accessibility Team help you with? We talk unemployment, meet VIP conduit, and more of your contributions. Mosin at Large Podcast. Welcome. It is wonderful to have you back again for another episode of Mosin at Large. Or if you're listening for the first time, a special welcome to you. Always good to hear from regulars and newbies alike. I tell you, it is early here, early on another Sunday morning as I put this together here in New Zealand. I bounced out of bed when my alarm went off at 4.15 a.m. as I have on a Sunday or a Monday morning during the New Zealand winter for the last 12 years. First with the live Mosin Explosion show and lastly with Mosin at Large. I have loved every minute of it and I am truly humbled and Quite surprised, actually, given how much choice there is out there that people are kind enough to listen to this. The big difference these days, of course, is that I now have a high-pressure job, which I love, but which consumes a lot of my time during the week, many, many waking hours, and it, of course, creeps into the weekend, too, because a job like this one, it doesn't stop when the weekend comes along. I do think it's good to have hobbies, outlets, when you have a busy job. I think it's good to have them whether you have a busy job or not. Maybe if I was sighted, I would be collecting Harley Davidson's or artwork or something. But for me, my hobbies, Mushroom FM, this podcast, the Blind Podmaker community that I started recently, they're all important to me because, as well as giving me something different to do, That recharges the batteries in itself. I do feel driven to give something back to the blind community. I figure if I can share what little knowledge I might have acquired about technology or facilitate some thoughtful discussion, promote blind pride and self-advocacy and help others in our community to create content, then it's honestly a privilege to be able to make that kind of contribution. So far, Mosin at Large has definitely been the pinnacle, and like many of the things that I've done in the radio or podcasting field, Mosin at Large grew organically, unexpectedly. It was driven by listener demand. Once I stopped hosting the Blindside podcast, talk contributions to the Mosin Explosion show increased significantly. And ultimately, it reached the point where I thought that I may as well put these talky bits together and publish them as a podcast, which of course caused even more talky bits to come in. And that is how Mosin at Large was born. If you listen to episode one of Mosin at Large, and it is still available in the podcast feed, you'll hear me talking about how I wasn't necessarily committing to weekly episodes and setting the expectations fairly low. Eventually, Mosin at Large occupied the full three hours of the live show I do on Mushroom FM, and I moved the Mosin Explosion to weekdays, which has worked really well. I put a lot of effort into what I do. The way I think about this is that if you're doing me the honor of listening, then I feel I should show you the respect and the courtesy that you deserve by producing the best quality show I'm capable of. Producing three hours of content to a standard that I consider deserving of your time week after week is actually a huge commitment. And then I package it into two versions. 
one for the show that goes out live on Mushroom FM and the other for the podcast. Now, we get an excellent number of listeners by internet radio standards who tune in to the Mushroom FM version. But even then, the number of people who tune in that way is well below 10% of the listeners who get the podcast. And I understand that because if I were a listener, I would choose the podcast version as well because I can speed it up. I can skip from chapter to chapter so that I can bypass bits that don't interest me. It just puts me as a listener in much greater control. Now, speaking as the host, getting up every Sunday morning at 4.15 means that Bonnie and I have to think about what we're going to do with our Saturday nights to accommodate the show to make sure that I'm not too tired for it. And we've not contemplated getting away for a weekend for a long time because of my commitment to doing the Mushroom FM show. So for quite a few months, I've realized that if I want to be the best version of me I can be, I do need to recalibrate my work-life balance a bit. And that's why today's Mosin at Large show is the last that will air on Mushroom FM. I want to be really clear about what I'm saying, about what this means. I am still very much committed to Mosin at Large. Mosin at Large will continue as a podcast, full of contributions, assuming you're still willing to send them in, of course, tech tips, interviews, and all the things that you've come to expect. I may not produce three hours every week, which the live show really compels me to do, but most weeks I will publish an episode and I will try to be consistent about when I publish that episode because I know that it's become a bit of a ritual for some people listening at a particular time and they rely on the podcast being there for that. So podcast listeners will notice very little difference, and that is well over 90% of the people that listen to the show. I'm just giving up this one live slot so I can relax a bit more and get a massive chunk of time back. You will not believe the difference this is going to make. The Mosin Explosion will continue on Mushroom FM during the week. We have a lot of fun there, and I hope you'll join me. 2 p.m. and a.m. U.S. Eastern Time, or North American Eastern Time, Every weekday, you can go to the Mushroom FM schedule page to find out when that is in your time zone. Small World, which gives me and many listeners, it seems, a lot of pleasure, will continue on Mushroom Escape. My decision should lock absolutely no one out of continuing to listen to Mosin at Large, because if you're listening live right now on Mushroom FM or Clubhouse or Facebook or YouTube, all of which will no longer carry Mosin at Large, then you have the ability to listen to the podcast. And I hope that you will subscribe in your podcast app of choice. It is, of course, free. If you go to mosen.org, that's M-O-S-E-N.org, and choose the link there for the Mosen at Large podcast, I've gone into a lot of detail about all the ways that you can hear the podcast. There will definitely be times when there are advantages in being live, where there might be a debate going on, where a range of listener perspectives would be useful in real time, our recaps of technology events from companies such as Microsoft and Apple are another example, and a further example I can think of is when I'm interviewing someone, and there may be a lot of interest in listeners being able to ask that person questions. In those cases, we will go live, and the way I'm thinking about it at the moment is that we're most likely to do that via Zoom. 
I say that because Zoom is ubiquitous. Pretty much everybody has it. It's installed on PCs, on smartphones. It's got massive take-up. The audio quality is pretty good. People can come in on a wide range of devices, and it's easy as a moderator to administer. If we go that route, then what I will be doing is posting Zoom links on the media list. The reason for that is that Zoom links posted to social media are susceptible to the phenomenon, the atrocity known as Zoom bombing. And we don't want that. We don't want things to be disrupted. The media list is more of a closed platform. So if you are interested in this show and you are not yet on the media list, I would encourage you to subscribe so that you will get notifications of when we're going to go live in this way. You can send a blank message to media-subscribe at mosin.org to get on there. Media-subscribe at mosin.org. That email list is announcement only and it's very low traffic. Usually about three to four messages a week come in there and you can, of course, unsubscribe at any time. I like to think that with a bit more juice in the tank, the Mosin at Large podcast will be even better. And the great news is you're going to hear something truly epic in the slot if you listen to Mushroom FM at this time, starting next week. Sarah Hillis will be hosting her popular Celtic and folk music show, Come by the Hills, in this slot. Sarah is a terrific broadcaster, so you're in great hands. My sincere thanks to everyone who has listened on Mushroom FM to Mosin at Large. It's impossible for me to know how many people listen exclusively on Mushroom FM at the moment and never access the podcast. But if that's you, I do hope that you will follow us to the podcast feed. I have to admit, much as it is an honor to give back to the blind community, it is with some excitement and relief that I finally get to do this. Delete my Sunday 4.15 a.m. alarm. I deleted your 4.15 a.m. alarm. Mosin at Large Podcast. This is an interesting one from Petra, who says, Hello, Jonathan, I just called Apple Accessibility for help and was told that if the issue doesn't have to do with an accessibility feature, I should call the main Apple number. I suppose this has always been the case, but was never told before. She continues, as far as rumours go, someone told me that they heard Apple was coming out with 11 new phones this fall. If that's true, that's extraordinary. I'm planning on getting a new iPhone in the fall because of the features my SE 2020 can't do. So it would be interesting to have that many choices. Well, I suppose it depends on how you count them, Petra. There will be various models of the same iPhone depending on the market that they serve. And that's because 4G and 5G frequencies, and even 3G frequencies if you're still using those, will vary from country to country. So let's have a look at the current range. You've got the iPhone 12 mini, the iPhone 12, the iPhone 12 Pro, and the iPhone 12 Pro Max. So that's four phones right there but then you have various versions of that phone so for example the 5g models you've got the mm wave versions that's available in the united states and then you have other versions that cases different 5g bands around the place so i think it is conceivable 
that there are 11 new phones being launched in about September of this year. But that doesn't mean that there will be 11 models for you to choose from. All of the credible data that I have seen indicates, I don't know whether they will call it 13 or not, but we will have, let's say, an iPhone 13, an iPhone 13 Pro, an iPhone 13 Pro Max, and an iPhone 13 Pro Mini, and then you will have the regional variations. So sure, the total number of phones launched around the world could well total 11. But I am interested in the comment that you got, the castigation, you were you were castigated by Apple Accessibility, Petra, <laughs> about calling them about something that was not related to accessibility. I'm interested in this. I typically do call the main number. I think I have called Apple Accessibility once, and that was relating to an issue with hearing aids when I got my iPhone 11 Pro Max. And you'll remember that there was a really bad experience at the beginning there for hearing aid users. It was so bad that for the first time, I was seriously contemplating sending back a new iPhone. But they did, to Apple's credit, get that one fixed in short order. So I called Apple Accessibility about that, but typically I do tend to use the main number, probably because we don't actually have a number for Apple Accessibility in New Zealand. We do have a number in Australia we can call, and my cell phone plan gives me free calls to Australia. So I think I called the accessibility number in that case. But if that advice is accurate, and not just one grumpy individual that you got, then that would put Apple at odds, certainly with the way that Microsoft does things. I give a big shout out to Microsoft's Disability Answer Desk, DAD for short. Thanks, DAD. Because you call that number and you can ask them about any Microsoft product. It could be an issue you're having with Microsoft Office. It could be something in Teams. It could be something to do with Windows and your computer doing something weird. Whatever it is, as long as you are an assistive technology user, they will talk to you. And the good thing is that they have received extensive training in assistive technologies. So when you call the Disability Answer Desk at Microsoft about anything relating to Microsoft, you don't get this click here stuff. You tell them you're a screen reader user and so you'll need keyboard commands. They know what JAWS is. They don't say, oh, I'm so sorry <laughs> when you tell them that you're blind. I have had a very good set of experiences with the Microsoft Disability Answer Desk. Now, if Apple is saying that you can't call the accessibility number unless it relates to an accessibility feature like voiceover or made for iPhone hearing aids or their Zoom magnification product, then that had better mean that when you call that main Apple number, you will get somebody who knows how to use voiceover, who isn't going to get flummoxed because generally I know my way around an iPhone. If I call Apple support, it's something that's gone pretty badly wrong. But that shouldn't be the threshold. The threshold should be that any user who has an issue with their phone or Apple product in general needs to be able to get support. So for a user who perhaps isn't conversant with the way that a sighted person uses the iPhone, for example, you had better hope that the person on the other end of the phone can translate what they want you to do into voiceover speak. The other question I would have is, 
who determines or what is it that determines when something is an accessibility issue and when it's not? If I have an issue using a particular Apple app or service, is it because I'm a voiceover user or is it because something's gone wrong at the Apple end? And as a non-techie user, how would I know? I would ask Apple Accessibility on Twitter, but they don't have a Twitter account. Daniel Jacobs says, I have gotten lots of help from Apple's inaccessibility team. I presume that's in, I presume that is accessibility team. I think that might be a typo. I'm hoping it is. I've found that over the past year, most especially, Apple's accessibility team has become more and more closed-minded about answering even just basic technical questions. For instance, all I did last week was to ask accessibility at apple.com where iTunes stores its backups on Windows computers so that I can have my iPhone and iPad backups available to me when I synced them to my new computer. Their answer was to tell me that I have reached the email for Apple accessibility, that I would need to contact technical support. Also, I have had to contact Apple accessibility for voiceover problems and have found that I have had to get transferred to a senior accessibility advisor because the person to whom I was speaking was either not trained or didn't have much experience with voiceover. Even better or worse, Depending on your opinion, Apple has a share your screen through ara.apple.com. Unfortunately, as I found out the hard way, I needed someone to control my computer, since many features are simply not accessible to JAWS users, features like deleting all your iTunes authorizations. This is only available by using the mouse. Unfortunately, at that time, I didn't know anything about enabling mouse echo. I quickly investigated. I very much enjoy Microsoft's accessibility desk and use them quite a bit, actually. By taking over my computer, I can pretty much give them directions for them to do what I need, and they just do it. Thank you for that, Daniel. You raise some really important points, I think, and I hope we can get some further experiences from people on what they are seeing with Apple accessibility. It is Apple's right, of course, as a business to determine its own policies and when you should contact what outlet. But it does seem to me that if, for example, you are a blind person using JAWS and you're having issues with accessibility of iTunes, then that clearly is an accessibility issue. iTunes is Apple software, after all. I have to say it's been a while since I've removed authorizations from iTunes, but it was accessible then. I was able, without any mouse jiggery pokery, to go in and remove all my authorizations so I could start again. But it has been quite some time since I've had to do that, so it may well have changed for the worse since then. I can understand why Apple might be frustrated with people contacting Apple Accessibility who do not have accessibility needs and sort of bucking the system, as it were, perhaps thinking that they can jump the queue by using the Apple Accessibility number to get answers to questions. And that's not a good thing. It's the equivalent of people who don't need it parking in disability car parks. But if you are a blind person or a person with another accessibility need, you may well need technical help that involves the step-by-step instructions you might get to be voiceover-centric. Don't forget Ira in these situations, though, where you may need some assistance with remoting into a Windows PC to get a job done. Now, this isn't technical support. Ira doesn't say that it's going to provide you with that. 
But if you just need a human screen reader and somebody to instruct to click at a certain point, then Ira is brilliant for that. And they do offer five minutes free per day. So if you're organized and you have TeamViewer set up on your computer, you can call the Ira agent. You can say, I'd like a quick TeamViewer session, please. You can give them your login ID and a password, which changes with every session. And the agent can log in, and it's amazing what you can get accomplished in five minutes. I use Ira a lot for that. So please share. Good and bad, I have to say. I don't want this to be a dumping session at all. So if you've had some great experiences with Apple accessibility and you feel like they've gone the extra mile, I would love to hear about that as well. This is a nice email subject to get. It's hello from a new fan. It's from Shana Sickler, and she says, Hello, Jonathan. I only recently discovered your fantastic podcast. So please forgive me if I resurrect a couple of older discussions. First, thank you, thank you for your stance against the misuse of the word blind. It's a relief to know that someone else feels as strongly about this as I do. I'm a linguist by training, which means I spend a great deal of time noticing words and how society chooses to use them. As a result, I have often wondered whether or not I've been overly sensitive when I make a point of calling writers out on the issue. However, the more I think about this, the more unacceptable it seems for me to sit back and allow sighted people to use the word blind as a pejorative. Incidentally, the past few content creators I've spoken with about this have been very receptive. So there is hope for humanity. Absolutely, Shana, we have to stand up against this. If we want to combat the high unemployment, the discrimination, unless we demand respect, we're not going to get respect. And using the word blind in such a way disrespects us, and it's got to stop. She continues, regarding disability training for doctors, which someone asked about a few weeks ago, my husband is a physician practicing at the teaching hospital, so I asked him whether or not he received such training, either in medical school or during his residency. He informed me that actually nobody receives training like that. Med students learn how to treat disabled people medically, but not anything much about disability etiquette, for lack of a more concise term. Learning appropriate ways to treat disabled patients mostly happens through experience. I should point out that we're located in the United States, so things may be different in other parts of the world. Finally, about Apple technical support. Yes, that's why I slotted Shana's email in here. I recently needed to contact them because I accidentally enabled screen recognition in a couple of apps one of which included settings. I still don't quite know how I did that, but there wasn't any way for me to fix the issue myself. My hope was that an Apple specialist could take control of my device and help me disable screen recognition altogether, but apparently nobody at Apple can do that. The agents can see our devices and give instructions, but they can't themselves take over and make repairs. The other experience I had with them was worse. I had a hardware issue, which I already knew. I just needed to get someone to make arrangements for me to get my device repaired. Except once the tech I started with realized I use voiceover, he insisted I deal with the accessibility team and things got complicated after that. Thus far, while everybody has been super polite, they haven't been terribly helpful. 
Well, thank you, Shana. I had a fear that this would happen, that if you start having demarcation issues in a company about when a blind person should and shouldn't talk to a particular department like the accessibility department, you are going to find people are going to be shunted from pillar to post. That's a terrible customer experience. I do want to come back and talk about the screen recognition. Screen recognition is a very powerful feature. But I have found that when it's on, when it doesn't need to be on, it can have the exact opposite effect from the one that you want. In other words, it can render an app that is actually fully accessible, completely inaccessible. I first found this out when I was testing iOS 14, which is the first operating system where the screen recognition was introduced. And I also got a test flight copy of my Parcel app. It's simply called Parcel, and it's a really good app. I put all my packages in there. And it keeps me up to date. It sends me push notifications. It's 100% accessible. And I really like this app. So I was surprised when I got this new test version of the Parcel app to find that it had become fully inaccessible. I couldn't do anything with it. I couldn't add my packages anymore. With something like this, I tend to let a couple of versions go by in case they fix it. But eventually I contacted the developer and I said, I can't use your app anymore. What have you done to it, Ivan? For Ivan is his name. What have you done? He said, as far as I know, I haven't done anything. And I eventually worked out that I had accidentally turned screen recognition on in the Parcel app. And that had completely broken my user experience. I don't know whether Apple can tidy this up in some way, but it was a cautionary tale. And since then, I'm very careful about it. Now, you do have control here in terms of the app where screen recognition is on. And if you have inadvertently turned it on, I hope you don't mind if you're a linguist, Shana, that I just split an infinitive there. Anyway, if apparently that's not such a sin as some people make it out. If you inadvertently have turned... Screen recognition on for an app, you can turn it off again, and we're going to show you this. The first thing we'll do is take a look at which apps screen recognition is on for at the moment, and you can enable it for specific apps this way if you want to as well. So to do this, we'll ask Siri to open VoiceOver settings. Open VoiceOver settings. And that little plonk tells me that VoiceOver settings are now open. I'm using iOS 15 at the moment, and it doesn't speak as much as it used to. But what we need to do now is locate this item on the screen. VoiceOver recognition button. And double tap that. Using on-device intelligence, your iPhone will automatically improve the accessibility of apps, images, and text. I'll flick right. Image descriptions off button. Your iPhone will speak descriptions of images in apps and on the web. Screen recognition on button. If you would rather... You can turn the screen recognition function off altogether. If you find that you are not downloading many inaccessible apps and that it's more trouble than it's worth being inadvertently enabled, then here is the master switch and you can go in here and disable it completely. I'll double tap. Screen recognition on. This is a bit like the voiceover screen. It says voiceover on and then when you double tap, you get into the voiceover screen. So now we are in the screen recognition screen. And if I double tap this button now, it will disable screen recognition altogether. I'll flick right. 68.1 megabyte used. Your iPhone will automatically improve the accessibility of apps that have no accessibility information, such as identifying the state of buttons or toggles and by grouping related items together. In other apps, Screen recognition can be accessed through the rotor. I'll flick right. Apply to apps. Three apps. Button. 
If I double tap here, I will get a list of all of the apps that are on my phone. So just to show you that briefly. Apply to heading One News button. There's my first app, which is called One News. It is a news app from a TV outlet here in New Zealand. And all of these apps are listed in alphabetical order. Apple chooses to put numbers at the top and then you'll go through alphabetically. So you can flick through this and when an app is selected for screen recognition, it will tell you that it is selected and you can deselect it on the screen by double tapping it. So it's a toggle. If you double tap it, it'll toggle it on and off. So in this screen, you have two options. You've got the master switch to just get rid of the feature altogether if you don't like it, and you can turn it off app by app. There is another thing that we can do as well, and I'll go back. Apply to apps, three apps button. And back one more time. Screen recognition on button. And to get back to the main voiceover screen, back one more time. Voiceover recognition button. If you want handy dandy control, of when VoiceOver's screen recognition is on and when it's off, you can add it to VoiceOver's rotor. To do that, we need to find this setting here. Rotor button. And double tap. Selected characters. Actions available. There are many settings on the rotor, but the one we want to look for is this. Selected screen recognition. Actions available. I have screen recognition selected and sometimes I wish I didn't, because every so often the rotor seems to set itself to screen recognition, even when I haven't deliberately chosen to set it there. And sometimes I swipe up and I find that I've accidentally turned screen recognition on when I didn't want it on. And that can have unforeseen consequences. So there are times when I think maybe I'll try taking screen recognition out of the rotor, because usually what happens is I turn screen recognition on when I've downloaded a new app and it's not behaving as I want. So it probably isn't too much of a big deal on those rare occasions for me to go in and manually enable screen recognition for that app and give it a try and then disable it rather than risk inadvertently enabling it. So we'll give that a shot. But those are a couple of strategies that will hopefully assist with the handling of screen recognition. Be the first to know what's coming in the next episode of Mosin at Large. Opt in to the Mosin media list and receive a brief email on what's coming so you can get your contribution in ahead of the show. You can stop receiving emails anytime. To join, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at M-O-S-E-N dot org. Stay in the know with Mosin at Large. Here's an email about a very important topic, which we discuss from time to time, and rightly so. Carolyn Peters emailing in from Auckland. She says, hi, Jonathan, just thought I would pose a question around this. I am looking for work in the administration slash customer services area, and most of these jobs are advertised through employment agencies. They are paid by the employer to advertise the position and then create a shortlist of people to be interviewed by the employer. Often, you do not know who the employer is, and you can be interviewed by the agency before you even reach that final list. Also, many of their testing processes are not accessible. Hence, often we are not successful because the agency wants to earn their fee as easily as possible. I wonder if it would be different if it was the candidates who paid the agencies to find them work. Would this give us a better shot at gaining employment? I would be interested in thoughts from your listeners. 
This is a really interesting question, Carolyn. Thank you so much. I do work with these agencies a lot, as I'm sure you will appreciate, both as the chief executive and also in trying to increase disability confidence of these agencies so that they are more aware of the capabilities of disabled people. I like to think and hope that disability confidence is increasing among this group. And I'm very conscious that even just by working with them and they're seeing a blind chief executive running an employment organization, that it's just helping by the fact that someone there is doing that. But it is a hard graft. And certainly if they choose to go down the psychometric testing route, and many do, a lot of those psychometric tests are inaccessible. I applied unsuccessfully a few years ago for a CEO gig, and I was put through a battery of psychometric tests. And the only way that I was able to complete them was to have a scribe who would read me the questions and I would dictate my responses. And I honestly think that it put me at a disadvantage because I think better when I'm at the computer, when I've got time to read and consider. And it wasn't my preferred method of working. And these things get me into trouble, of course, but I did say at the time, I really think if you want to run an equitable process that you should be asking these questions of everybody. If everybody has to respond verbally, then fair enough. But if I'm the only one that has to respond verbally and in this way, I think I'm being put at a disadvantage and I kind of grunted. Mm. (laughs) So there are real problems with these psychometric tests and I see them coming up a lot. I'd be interested to hear people's experiences with these psychometric testing platforms and other testing. Often for administrative type tasks, they also put you through sample work so you might be expected to write something or respond to something and depending on how accessible their systems are that might really put you at a disadvantage as well even though once you're up and running with some initial setup you would be a rock star in the position so there's a lot of work to do in this area i think the informational interview is often a good way to go. And I know a lot of people practice this, where they find a place that they'd like to work and they contact a relevant hiring manager and they say, listen, I'm really keen to work here. Even if you don't have any jobs available at the moment, would you give me 20 minutes of your time just so I can understand the kind of people that you look for? And a lot of people applaud that initiative. You're going to get some rejections, of course, but it may well be the foot in the door that you need for a role. A really important topic that you bring up, and I look forward to people's comments on all of this. Richard Godfrey McKay is talking about employment as well and says, Hi, Jonathan, I was interested to hear the various contributions on this subject and wondered if some might find my experience of interest. I qualified as a solicitor in 1980 and went about the task of finding work. I went for an interview at one organization and was asked back into the interview room three times to field various questions. On my third return, I took a chance and said, it seems likely to me that you like me. I had an Oxford law degree and I may be wrong, but I suspect that you can't imagine how a blind person can be an efficient solicitor. I then suggested that if that were the case, I'd be happy to accept an offer of six months employment and leave if the employer wasn't happy with my performance after that time. At the end of my first week, the head of the law department came to see me and apologized for not having understood that a blind person could work as efficiently as his sighted colleagues, and he was happy to confirm my appointment. That was a very big 
thing to do. One concern I have is that nowadays, with all the equality legislation in force, and which is designed to assist disabled people, no employer would dare to admit that he doubted the ability of a disabled person to perform work for fear of falling foul of equality legislation. Everyone who's been on an interview panel knows that it's very easy to assign another reason for turning down a potential applicant. The story eventually got much better, and I ended up doing the job of the principal legal officer when he retired. Thanks, Richard. I share your concern, and I'm not saying in any way that the new legislation that we have around the world is a bad thing. But I think we do have to be careful not to drive these discussions underground because it can be counterproductive. And one of the things that we work on, and obviously this is my day job, um, being the chief executive of an organization that assists disabled people with the challenge of finding employment, we work on what we call positive disclosure, actually front-footing these issues and trying to put people at their ease. It is unfortunate that we have to be in this position because some people don't feel comfortable, don't feel assertive, and we try to assist in those cases. But you're right. It is important to confront these issues. We are a low-incidence population, particularly blind people. So we may be the first professional blind person that anybody has ever met who's on that panel. And we do have to find a way to put people at their ease. Having done so, though, we are absolutely entitled to call out and prosecute, if necessary, discrimination when and if it occurs. Barry Jennings is writing in on Employment Matters. He says, Hi, Jonathan. I follow a podcast from MIT Technology Review called In Machines We Trust. An interesting episode dropped on June the 20th called Hired by an Algorithm. This episode is about half an hour long, and I think it might form the basis for an interesting discussion on Mosin at Large. I turn 71 this fall, so a job hunt isn't likely to be a part of my future. However, if the podcast episode I mentioned above is accurate, then I am concerned that people with disabilities might be getting a raw deal when applying for employment. Back in the early 70s, when I started my career, you would drop off your resume at the HR department of the company you were interested in, and you might or might not hear back from the company. At least, though, there was a chance that a human at said company would read your resume and you might get an interview. Or maybe you could score an interview by just knowing someone who worked at the company. Whatever the result, the interaction was between you and the company. Today, HR departments have shrunk, with much of the hiring farmed out to third parties. Today, people applying for jobs will typically send their resumes to places like ZipRecruiter, Indeed, or LinkedIn. These companies use AIs to scan the resumes before they reach a human. This means that you might be rejected by the AI before it reaches a human for who knows what reason. The AIs are proprietary, and the vendors won't or maybe can't tell you how they work. I know there has been a lot of debate in the blind community regarding the disclosure of your visual impairment. Would you be rejected by the AI if you disclose the fact that you are blind? And if you didn't mention your blindness, could the AI find that out anyway, given the casual way data is shared these days? 
people with disabilities already suffer a bleak situation regarding employment, and I fear the practice of using AIs to scan resumes could make the situation much worse. Thank you, Barry. One of the things that I do find encouraging in the employment market is that more and more employers are aware that their workforces benefit from being more diverse. And we are making progress, I like to hope, in the idea that disability should also be included in the concept of adversity. So it is possible, I suppose, that an AI that is programmed to encourage a more diverse workforce may be less prone to throwing you into the no pile when they get your CV. But of course, as you say, it's an unknown quantity because we don't know what the AI is programmed to do. Human beings really haven't worked out so well for us, though, have they? (laughs) Because there are biases that are there. I suppose what this says to me, though, is when you're putting a CV together and a cover letter for that application, you have to really look carefully at the job description and wherever possible, use the same kind of language, use the very terminology that is in that position description. If you are going to put together a generic cover letter and a generic CV, chances are higher that it's going to be chunked into the no pile. But if you really study the position description, A lot of these algorithms, as I understand them anyway, and I'm no expert in the algorithms, but they tend to work on keywords. So if you can get those keywords in, it's more likely to make the thing go ping and perhaps get you to the point where a human will take a look. It's a very interesting subject, and I will check out the podcast. Mike Calvo writes, I am writing today to share a not-so-positive consumer experience. I would like to encourage blind consumers to advocate and stand up for the rights of disabled consumers and the usability, or not, of consumer products they purchase. Reviews are so important. Don't run out and give that inaccessible product a one-star review. Give the manufacturer the chance to realize that they left out an important part of the world's consumer market when designing whatever it is you purchased. If they don't comply, or like in the following story, just don't care, then let your voice be heard as loud as possible and on every platform possible. Our money is as good as anyone else's, and we demand accessibility in consumer products as cost and technology allows. This past March, I purchased a Pit Boss Pro Series 2 1150 grill at Lowe's. Like others, tired of being cooped up for a year of COVID restrictions, I was getting ready for the summer heat and many days spent in the pool, grilling in the Florida sun, in the company of friends and family. I chose this brand and model because it was said to be a solidly built product, had great reviews, and best of all, a great value for the price. The smart technology features were important to me because most pallet grills have inaccessible digital LCD control panels. I have previously owned a Green Mountain Grills smart pallet grill that did the trick at the time, but for the combination of reasons above, I moved to the Pit Boss. I figured the companion app to the 1150 would be perfect to be able to grill independently using my iPhone and the included voiceover screen reader. When I finally got the grill delivered and began to set it up on my network, I discovered the app was not accessible for blind people using the iPhone. You see, 
I had no way to know if the app was accessible until I connected it to a grill, something that can't always be done in a store, especially with a grill. It was impossible for me to independently connect to the grill for the first time with the app. Even simple things like setting and adjusting the grill temperature were impossible for me to do by myself. This basically left me with a useless product, but I had hope. I called Pit Boss. Surely there was something that could be done as a workaround until the developers could make it fully accessible. As a blind consumer, having dealt with hundreds of consumer electronic companies over the years, this would not be my first time giving the Accessibility 101 class. While sometimes frustrating when something doesn't work, I am usually pleasantly surprised at the level of enthusiasm most companies display when they find that there is an entire market of customers out here they never noticed. I have written many reviews throughout the years describing my mostly positive experiences. Because many of us blind folks self-advocate for accessibility, many consumer products have become usable to various types of enthusiasts. So, armed with these positive experiences, I figured I got this. After making my way through a complex menu structure on the PitBoss phone system, I finally connected with smart IT app support. I must mention here that PitBoss farm out the support for the app to the developer T2Fi, which is spelt T, the number two, and then F-I. While many of the PitBoss employees I spoke to on this journey weren't able to figure out how to fix my problem, I never experienced the level of ignorance from PitBoss support staff like I am about to share from the T2Fi support and management teams. The T2Fi representative seemed to have been caught off guard. He didn't know blind people could cook, let alone use grills. It's at this point that we start exploring the line between ignorance and stupidity. You see, an ignorant person cannot be fully blamed for not being aware of something. For example, your average T2Fi customer representative may have never considered how a blind person would grill meat. Once explained, they can no longer claim to be ignorant, right? Oh no, if it had only ended there, but we were just getting started. The rep began to wax philosophical about how I needed to understand that blind people are the minority, so we probably weren't very high on the priority list when designing this grill. After all, more sighted people buy grills than blind people. He actually said this. He continued to add insult to injury by saying the future feature list was long, but he would make sure that my feature request would get on it. But he was unable to tell me when or if voiceover support was coming to the Smoke It app. I was done with this guy. I demanded to speak to someone in charge. My call was escalated. I was told I was going to speak to the actual owner of T2Fi, Ken. I was excited. Certainly Ken, the owner, knew about accessibility. After all, the website was full of consumer-level automation software. This couldn't all be inaccessible, could it? But alas, the ignorance, or is it stupidity, continued. Ken got on the phone and explained that Pitboss had never asked them to include the feature of voiceover or talkback support into the Smoke It software to control the grills. 
I explained that Pitbus most likely wouldn't be aware of accessibility features in the operating system or software and web accessibility standards because they build grills and he, Ken, builds software that has to adhere to these standards. So it is his responsibility to include these standards in the original design forward if possible. I explained to him that there was possible ADA violation by not making the Smokit software accessible to consumers with various disabilities. I explained that T2Fi was responsible to PetBoss to inform them if a product didn't meet accessibility standards that incorporated features included by Apple and Google as part of the software development tools meant to accommodate customers with disabilities. If T2Fi didn't do this, they were opening themselves and PetBoss up to a possibly huge legal, consumer and PR backlash. He promised to speak to PetBoss management about my concerns to see if they would fund my, quote, feature request, unquote. He would get back to me. Three months later, I'm still waiting. I called Ken back several times and never got a phone call again from any T2Fi employee about this issue. First, accommodating all customers is not a feature request. Accommodating all customers should be a part of the core product. It's basic business sense if for no other reason than you should want to increase your profit by making your product appealing to as wide a circle of customers as possible. Second, the company lunged headfirst into the land of stupid by pointing out there were more sighted customers than blind. The issue was not high on their priority list. Putting ADA violations aside, the company's management had been made aware of their oversight and chose not to make it a mutual concern. I've spent decades in the technology industry, mainstream and assistive. I've learned consumers too often pass up the opportunity to communicate their complaints with product manufacturers likely because they did not know how to explain the problem of inaccessible interfaces. But we have made enough strides in technology that it should not be your responsibility to explain to a developer the importance of inclusivity. If you ask an architect to build your house, it's up to them to figure out the permits. I reached out to PetBoss and T2Fi in March. We're now approaching mid-June and there has been zero progress on making the pit boss usable for a blind customer. Lowe's was great. They gave me my money back, even though the product return period had expired. They did not ask questions about how blind people are able to cook. To them, it was enough to want to do right by me as one of their customers. In order to enjoy the independent grilling experience I want... I would have to end up spending $1,500. This is more than twice the price of the original grill I purchased. Also, the product I ended up with is two-thirds the size of the Pro Series 2 1150. In today's climate of diversity and awareness, this blind tax is a reprehensible travesty. In the end, I purchased a Traeger, that's spelled T-R-A-E-G-E-R, ironwood, 885 for my needs. Now the Traeger is an incredible grill and worth every penny. But I, like many consumers, liked the pit boss promise of great quality for a great price. I am not going to give a review on the Traeger here. 
but when I was shopping, it was certainly my second choice based on the price, not the quality. Lowe's provided an excellent purchasing and ultimately return experience. Even though I was purchasing the next grill from a competitor, Lowe's let me hold on to the pit boss over the Memorial Day weekend while my replacement was on the way. They took my situation and made it their problem. I am forever grateful to my Orlando Lowe's team for treating me with respect, compassion, and dignity. How is it that a company with experience across a wide range of home management projects like Lowe's did not bat an eye, but a company with a much narrower scope cannot wrap its head around a blind person using one of their products to prepare a meal. The manager at Lowe's said he would report this entire story to the main corporate headquarters. I have high hopes that Lowe's will do the right thing and demand Pit Boss adhere to accessibility standards for the Pit Boss products Lowe's sells to its customers with disabilities. Unfortunately, Lowe's did not have another smart grill that fit my needs, so I moved on to the Home Depot. They were amazing as well, and had me grilling in an accessible way on a Traeger Ironwood 885 in just a few days. But more about that in a minute. The line between ignorance and stupidity is not a fine one. We can excuse people for not being aware of all things, but stupidity says the person or in this case, a company, was properly and patiently educated and made the conscious choice not to care. Between the time Lowe's agreed to take back the grill and the time they picked it up, I contacted Pitboss one more time to inform them I was quite disgusted with my user experience and that I would be reflecting my feelings in a review. In fact, I did post a one-star review and somehow it never got approved onto the Pitboss site. I ultimately got a call from Pitboss Quality Assurance. I was promised that my issue would be looked into. I informed them that I had to return the grill because I had heard nothing for three months, and Lowe's was nice, but not that nice. I was given the contact info for the person in Quality Assurance to contact if I had any other issues with Pitboss. I waited and, after a couple of messages back and forth between Pitboss Quality Assurance and me, I was told that voiceover support would be out by July. I told them I would be happy to test if they provided me a grill for testing, but I wasn't going to gamble any more of my money on Pitboss until I saw a concerted effort to serve the needs of Pitboss customers with disabilities. If I had heard from this quality assurance person the first or second time I had contacted Pitboss back in March, they might still have a customer. But instead, they have a black mark that will not be forgotten by our community until it is resolved. Despite paying more, Traeger has inspired my loyalty because they have listened to the feedback of the blind barbecue community. Is the Traeger perfectly accessible? For the most part, yes. It can certainly use some accessibility love in certain parts of the app, but I am sure that when I call Traeger with a problem with accessibility of its app, I am going to hear a considerate voice that is going to treat me with the respect a paying customer requires, and the problem will be addressed. As much as it pains my bank account to pay twice the price, you can't really put a price on respect, empathy, and inclusion. So I got what I paid for. 
Thank you, Mike, for that account and also for your persistence. We are not going to get the change that we deserve, the change that is our right, until we keep fighting the battles in exactly the way that you have. And your experience is a salutary lesson for anyone in business about what happens when people do the right thing and what happens when people do the wrong thing. Some companies in this story have earned your loyalty because of the way they conducted themselves. Others have earned your rightful suspicion. And I had an example of this last year where we updated our Sony Bravia TV because the new version supported HDMI eARC and that was necessary for using with the Sonos Arc. And what we found was that you couldn't have their screen reader running and the eARC support switched on at the same time. But it took some time for us to get that information straight and talk to Sony. And I was just concerned that it might take some time until we got a software update that resolved the issue. And the store that we bought from let us return that TV and get the new Samsung one that we have and enjoy very much, despite the right of return period having long expired. And what's happened? What's happened is that when we've bought a number of appliances since, I have always chosen that chain, which for those listening in New Zealand is Noel Leeming, by the way, over competitors because of the way that they looked after me on that occasion. They have earned more business from me because they did the right thing. What's on your mind? Send an email with a recording of your voice or just write it down. Jonathan at mushroomfm.com. That's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N at mushroomfm.com. Or phone our listener line. The number in the United States is 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-60-667-36. One of the things I've really enjoyed over the years is being involved in various community projects. The internet has brought us together in many ways as a blind community because I think communities can be defined in various ways. We have geographical communities, sure, that we are a part of, our neighborhoods, our works. But I think that also the blind community is a distinct group with needs and interests and preferences that unite us, that bring us together. And one site that has been doing this for some time now is VIP Conduit. And this interview actually began because Barry Jennings sent me a really interesting email And I thought, well, rather than just read the email, we'll get Barry on the show to have a chat about VIP Conduit and this specific project that he reached out to me about. So, Barry, it's good to have you with us. And as we record this, it's Canada Day. So I'll I'll wish you happy Canada Day on the show. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you for the opportunity. You've been involved in these communities a wee while, right? Because your involvement actually dates back to before VIP Conduit. Yes, it does. I looked after for the people.com for, for some time, for four years. And uh, we, in 2005, we decided that uh, a group of us decided we wanted to form our own community, and we did that. And uh, so we're, as of today, it's our 16th anniversary. So we've, we've been on for 16 years as of today. We officially launched July 1st, 2005. Well, congratulations, because a lot of things don't last that long in internet land. Why is VIP Conduit still going? What do you attribute its success to? Mutual respect for everybody. Uh, Very little drama. If there is anything that happens, you know how neighborhoods are. You talked about geographical neighborhoods. And, you know, you get someone who has a dog that barks all night or has a doesn't take care of their property or whatever. Next thing you know, people are starting to move out. With our site, our community, we, if there is a problem, we try to nip it in the bud. 
uh, and do it respectfully and, and it, the best way we can without creating too much trouble. And I think that's the key, is that keeping everybody happy and, and, and very, there's very little these days uh, that goes on that uh, causes us any trouble. We're probably the number of account suspensions we can count on one hand. It seems to me that one of the reasons why you're still around is also one of the reasons why Mushroom FM has survived, and that is that you do have a lot of structure. Uh, people think that you can build these things and just let anything go, but you've got people who know what they're in charge of. You've got a set of guidelines. There has to be that structure there for a community to survive and thrive, right? Yes, and we're very lucky that we have people who can fill the roles that they have to fill to begin with. Uh, we had an attorney, I, I don't know if I can mention names, uh, uh, who's is a, still a member. Uh, he, he, helped our, he helped our site get going. He did all the, all the uh, documentation stuff because we actually formed a corporation. Right. And, and, then, and set up a board and set up rules about how the boards would be, uh, uh, would be run and everything. So that was, that was important. We even have an insurance for, all the, for the board to – because uh, our friend told us that this is this is important uh, for us in case you get sued quite easily in the U.S. as you know, and so <laughs> yeah, you know for any reason. So we're we're trying to cover off all those bases. And so when people go to VIP conduit, what can they do on the site? Well, voice chat is our primary uh, thing. We've got. Quite a number of rooms. They have. Uh, we, we use Team Talk because it's familiar to the blind community. Uh, we used our own client for a while, and I actually three different versions of it that I built. And then uh, we decided, well, this this program's on all the platforms, so let's let's uh, go with it. We also have. I wanted it to be more than just a, a site where people came to chat. So, for example. In the early days, I built a, a, a web forums app, and that uh, combines the best, I think, the best features of web forums and mailing lists. And we have that. We have a, a little app that you can create little reminders. You know, you've got a doctor's appointment or something. You can get the reminder by email or when you log into the site. We've got uh, uh, several little, little features. Uh, uh, we've got a good help desk that, that I built, uh, well, Reasonably good, I guess. It, it's uh, uh, and and we've uh, a ticketing system that uh, uh, is um, screen reader friendly. So it, I, I think we we try our best. Oh, there's a weather app that uh, for the U.S. and Canada, you can you can track weather locations, uh, uh, that, that kind of thing. We 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 try to make it as as much as we can. Uh, uh, not just about uh, oh, and, and of course, of course, we have a great big links. Uh, facility. I should send you the link to that page because it's we thousands of links to all kinds of places, blind organizations. So you, it's uh, places like uh, if you want to track your genealogy or do all kinds of stuff. It's we've built it over many years, so it's all categorized. And then we have uh, uh, this cookbook that, uh, that that you mentioned earlier. So uh, we're trying to, and and we run a, a cooking event once a month. As well, we've had other ones in the past, and this one uh, I think it's once a month. In the so we're we're uh, we're trying our best to make it, give people things to do other than going into the rooms. Right, and I'll come back to the cookbook in a minute. A couple of questions: How many members are actively participating? You may not feel happy disclosing that, but it would be interesting to know if you are. 
Oh, I'm guessing active depends what you consider active, but maybe maybe there's a hundred or so that that come in a lot. Uh, there's there's probably three hundred and something altogether. Hmm. Uh, these te- these sites tend to be, you know, it's a small market, as you know. Yes. And I wonder whether Team Talk contributes to that because it is quite a geeky app, especially on Windows and Mac. It's a bit more streamlined on your iPhone, and I guess a lot more people are coming in. But sometimes selecting the right settings, getting the right microphone chosen, things like that, it, it can be quite a high bar. Do you think that contributes? Possible. The last app that we had, uh, we called it VIP Communicator. It was home bi- homebrew. Uh, I built it, and it based on the TeamTalk SDK, but it was um, it was a little friendlier. You didn't have to worry about as many things, like you say, getting the nicknames right and getting the the volume right and getting all that sort of stuff. Usually, it just worked. But the reason why we switched is because it would have meant we would have had to build an iOS app, an Android app, and so on. So, the, and I, I agree with you. It is a little geeky, although we've done some things with it. You don't have to launch the app. You can just go into the website, click the room link, and it's there. It um, it knows your user ID and password and and so on. So it's we, we do the best we can, but uh, the choices of what you can use are kind of limited. Since VIP Conduit came along, of course, there's been a real explosion of options. Uh, Zoom has been the darling of the pandemic. And also now, of course, we have these services like Clubhouse and the Green Room that Spotify has just launched and Twitter Spaces, a number of people getting into this audio space. How do you think that impacts on something like VIP Conduit, which is blindness specific, or does it just keep on keeping on? I don't think it affects as much. I We tend to be an older group, and I don't know that any anybody in there is using Clubhouse. They might be, and I'm not likely to know if they are, so... I think some of the, those apps are going to go away. I'm not sure Clubhouse is going to survive long term. Myself, I, I, I think that it, it, it had some cachet because because it was invitation only, and because we had the pandemic and all sorts of things like that. But I now everybody's creating one. I don't know if uh, all of them are going to survive. Some some of them will die out. And when you go to VIP Conduit, there are all sorts of groups that you can join on specific subjects, right? So you've got general chat where people can just pop in and have some company and shoot the breeze. But there are also really specific things that you can attend at specific times. We have a schedule. We have a everything in the on the site is pretty much driven by the database. And so things like creating rooms, uh, uh, creating accounts, putting out a schedule, it's all based on our on our MySQL database. And what's nice is it's possible to do a lot of that stuff without me even being involved. Uh, we have a few people who, who've learned to use some of those features, those admin features, and they, uh, they do a good job. That's a good thing about a database-driven system, isn't it? That once you've set it up, it pretty much runs itself. Yes. Yes, it does. I, I do very well. I never have to deal with the schedule. We have someone that does that. And I never have to deal with any of the other, uh, most of the other things when uh, we have another person, one or two people who do the, you know, when the new memberships come up, they, they approve them and so on. And if, if somebody needs a room, they don't usually call me. I've been able to uh, free myself from that kind of stuff and just sort of focus on uh, whatever new features I can dream up. 
You contacted me to tell me about the cookbook. I like the concept of cooking. I think when you sit down and you eat something that you've prepared yourself, it's kind of like enjoying a good audio production that you've worked on for a long time. And I'm sure that Bonnie wishes I did as much cooking as I did audio production. But tell me about how this cookbook came to be and what you have in it now. We had a few recipes on for the people. Uh, nothing organized, just they were lying around on the site, kind of a, a, a not really organized in any way. And I thought, we have a lot of people that like to talk about food. And so why not create a cookbook? I decided, well, I've got a database. I can just, it won't take much for me to build something like this, where we could, we could have the members contributing recipes. And so we did that. And today... We have well over 5,000 recipes. I think the last time I checked, it was 5,300 and something. It spread over 109 categories. And that, and I have to say, that's not my doing. That's the, the guy that does this. So he, he, there's one or two people that take care of this thing. And they do an amazing job. And people write to them with their recipes. We also have a whole ton of hints and tips stuff that people have contributed over the years. You know, how to store food. There's an interesting thing that I uh, put up the other day called uh, All About Vinegar. I had no idea there were so many uses for vinegar. So there's, there's an awful... <laughs> and, and so many kinds. If people want are looking at the recipes, they also might want to go down near the bottom of the categories where it is and just look at, the, look at those hints and tips because they are, there is a lot of good information there. How to, how to cook things, how to bake properly, how to temperature, uh, you know, measurement uh, tables and temperature tables and gosh knows a lot of stuff. And am I correct in saying that you've made this available even to non-members, that it's actually yes. just publicly yes. out there now? That and, uh, and the links collection are both available to non-members. For people who would like to join, is there a membership fee to join VIP Conduit? You can be a guest and stay a guest forever, as long as you log in. And I, I think we, we clear it out every once in a while. So you can stay a member that way, but it's not, uh, you get fewer privileges. Fewer, not, you can't get into all the rooms and so on. $20 a year if, if you want to be a supporting member. And you will get a free trial, by the way, for that. It's a 30-day free trial when you sign up. It's actually never gone up since 2005. Another thing that some people might be interested, you asked about the, what membership, uh, uh, we, we also have a, a NFL, a con every year they do the NFL. We didn't do it this year because we weren't sure if it was going to actually be running. But I put the schedule up every year and then people can predict their, who's going to win and what week. And the person who gets the most games right, they, they, they'll win a cash prize. I think it's, uh, what is it, uh, $200 for first prize, second, I think it's 150 and third prize is 100 So we'll probably do it again this year uh, because we the pandemic is over. And I think we're pretty safe in saying that the, there will be a schedule this year. For, for those who are football fans, well, that, that's something. It seemed like an easy thing to do. It's very much more difficult for something like baseball or or hockey or, or soccer, you know, the other, the other sports because they have much longer schedules. Yes, well, I'd love to see you try with the uh, five-day cricket matches. That'd be pretty interesting. Yeah, yes. yeah. I, yeah, it would be a challenge, wouldn't it? Oh, and something else, Jonathan, we, it is, it is uh, mobile-friendly. We've tried our best. The latest version when, when with uh, iPhones and everything, it uh, looks quite different because you have limited screen real estate. 
but I tried my best to make it mobile friendly. So if, if you're doing it with an iPhone, uh, you, you'll probably like the experience. Brilliant. Lovely, Barry. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate that. Okay, thank you, Jonathan. Wonderful to talk to you. Barry Jennings, obviously a very talented man who has put a lot of time into VIPconduit.com and to visit the site, that is VIP and then Conduit is spelled C-O-N-D-U-I-T dot com. This email comes from Carol Ashland. She writes, Hi, Jonathan. I've bought two sets of DVDs that have multiple episodes on each disc. However, I found that the DVD player I bought will only play the first episode on the disc. Evidently, there is a menu on the disc that allows a sighted user to select play all, but that doesn't do me, a lone, totally blind person, any good. Does anyone have a solution to this problem? Thank you for getting in touch, Carol. I too would be interested to find out what solutions people suggest for accessibly navigating DVDs. When I need to do this, I use a program on my PC called DVD Audio Extractor, and it shows me the different files on the DVD, and I can play them on my computer. Now, you may or may not want to do that, and of course you may need to buy an external DVD drive that plugs into your computer to do that, but it's accessible, and it also allows you to extract the files from the DVD so that once you've done it once, if you're a blind person living on your own, or even in our case two blind people living on our own, and we just want the audio, we've extracted the files into something that we can then play elsewhere. But there may be other ways. I think I did hear somewhere about some accessible DVD player that was trying to make those menus talk for when you've got it connected to a television or something like that. But I don't have any details. So if people have strategies or devices for navigating DVD or more commonly these days, Blu-ray discs, please share. Douglas Howard is in Ontario, Canada and says, was just wondering, I have a desktop computer as well as a laptop computer. They are both Dell computers. My desktop computer is brand new. I just received it yesterday, and my laptop is about six years old or so. Each computer has a sound card. If I use a screen reader and broadcast music, and I would like the screen reader in my ears playing, because I figured that would save from the bleeding out when I am recording, is there a particular sound card I should buy for the computer? Well, Douglas, I think it's really important to be clear about the use case for any device that you might be buying. So if you are wanting to do internet radio, which is what I think you are saying, then Station Playlist will let you do all of this without purchasing an additional audio device if you want to. So when you're playing music, you can actually mute that music in your headphones through the sound card if you want to, and it will still play out over the stream and then you can get a beep to tell you when your track is ending and unmute it. So it means, for example, that if you have a busy live show and you want to check social media or emails that might be coming in, you can mute the sound entirely while you do that. Also, audio ducking, which is available in all current screen readers, will duck the audio so you can hear your speech over the music. So you may not need a second device because of the audio pipeline in Station Playlist Studio. If all you're wanting is a second sound card for a screen reader, any cheap one will do. Just buy one for five or ten bucks and plug it into the USB port. So based on your description, 
that's what I would recommend. If you were dealing with multi-channel, multi-track recording in something like Reaper, then obviously I would make a different recommendation. If you want to learn more about Station Playlist Studio, we do have the broadcast tutorial still available. You can go to mosin.org and go into the store section there. You will find Broadcast It, which is a comprehensive guide to the Station Playlist suite. Brian Hartgen and I put that together some years ago, and you'll find it quite informative. It is time now for another exquisite Bonnie bulletin with the exquisite Bonnie Mosin. Hi, everybody. Welcome to you. Hi. This will be the last time you'll be down here on I a know. Sunday morning. It will be. It'd be kind of nice to be able to have a nice little lion and just relax. And You'll be the Lion King. I'll be the Lion King. <laughs> the yeah, lion exactly. King. Exactly. <laughs> what a good pun. <laughs> what did you want to talk about this week? Well, it's been great, you know, being on the show for the past however many years. But, but you still will be. I mean, I mean it still will be. Well, just you'll be on the podcast. Still. Yeah. We don't want to make this more dramatic. Than no, it, you no. Know. And I'm hoping that, you know, there may be times when we can do podcasts together about certain topics. Oh, boy. Um, you know, or have a certain person that we interview together because that would be that would be really nice. Name one. Maybe I don't know. I just I, I'm listening to the or was listening to the resolutions. Maybe. Nagdu or someone. You say you want a resolution. Well, it was so funny because when they got to resolution eight or two hundred eight or what away, whatever they they titled them at, Mark Riccobono said revolution. I'm like, oh, too bad it wasn't nine. (laughs) Revolution number nine. I know. He just got you know his words. I'm sure he's exhausted, but just got his words mixed up. Said uh, resolution eight. So that was kind of funny. So yeah, I've been listening to the virtual convention uh, NFBF. This week and ACB, I believe, is next week. And it's nice. It's, it's, I have really missed going to convention. And also, I think it opens up to so many people who have either can't go to convention or never thought about going to convention, don't want to go to convention, whatever. It really opens up the world for them and brings in more, more people around the world, not just in the US and Canada. But it's, it, it's really good that they've been doing these virtual conventions and i think even next year when they hopefully are back in omaha for acb and new orleans for nfb that they'll have some sort of hybrid model as well they have done a good job and i i haven't listened to a lot of it because the time zones really haven't yeah, been my favorite yeah the time favor. zones tough but i did listen to some of it yesterday and i thought wow this is kind of like one of those Telethons. It actually reminded me of the Democratic National Convention, where I thought they did a really good job with the uh, streaming and the virtual side. And they took this little break, and suddenly there's this peppy person on there <laughs> doing a like a mindfulness fitness break. Uh, yeah, that's uh, Jessica Beecham and some of the guys out of Colorado. Is that who that, that the is? Spar- the, the Sparks and Recreation? Ah, the <laughs> Sports and Recreation Group. They're well, she really did a good, good job. Yeah, it, it was she's almost there year, yeah. it was almost like getting. The Mosin at Large contributions for Maria Christic, because every yeah. time Maria sends in a contribution, I feel like I've just had the most ginormous jolt of caffeine. Mm-hmm. So when I heard Jessica come on, so upbeat and like, okay, we're going to get moving. I'm oh, like, wow. Okay, good. No coffee for me. Uh, yeah. I sort of want to hear tap that free white cane again. I no, you keep talking about <laughs> this. They were, you know, dancing around. I guess it was Friday, maybe. And I was at work. 
And so they were, you know, kind of moving around and walking around. And then there was some little song that I guess somebody has recorded somewhere about tap that free white cane. And it was very catchy. And I can't find it on YouTube. So if anyone has it. (laughs) Well, it's good to know those songs are still being done because I remember going to my first NFB convention in 1995 and I got given a copy of the NFB songbook. Then I think I bought a record of it, a record of some of the songs sung from the songbook. I think it was a fundraiser thing. And they had that song about, wait, 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 your book's not in yet, which is my favorite one. (laughs) And then when I was talking to Mark Maurer about this, some years later, he said it was to the tune of Tramp, 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 the boys are marching. And I said, isn't it the tune of Jesus loves the little children? And he said, yeah, you never thought about that. It is actually the same tune. Yeah, a lot of those military <laughs> songs are to the tune of other things. Yeah. Sound off and, and yeah. some of those. But there things. was a good, and of course, there's that old one about I've been working in the workshops. Oh, yeah, I've been working on the railroad. And uh, Glory, Glory Federation, of yeah, course. Glory, Glory yeah, Federation. Yeah. Fun. Yeah, Fun. So it, it's, it, was, it was catchy and got stuck in my head as right. these things do. Earworm. Earworm. Well, if anyone knows where we can get the, what is it called? Tap, <laughs> tap, tap that free white tap cane. That free, free white cane. cane, yeah. Did you look it on the tube? I did, and I couldn't find it. I found like a, a video of the white cane program from, the free white cane program from NFB, but I couldn't find tap that. It may not even be called that. I'm not even sure. ACB starts next week, so... And it's funny when you hear people. We're equal opportunity streamers in they this are household. Equal, I just and have and to say. equal opportunity people go to each one. So it's kind of, kind of nice. Yeah. What about when ACB staff members get awarded door prizes yeah. at NFB conventions? That's, <laughs> That's very, kind of very, fun. very egalitarian, That's guys. Funny, yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, May there be peace on earth and let yeah. it begin with you guys. Yeah, exactly. So, but yeah. it's good because it does give people a chance to see what the other side, if you want to oh, put it. I mean, guys, look, there are. Too many serious issues confronting blind people for exactly. there not to be cooperation when exactly. cooperation. Is There's possible. good and bad in both organizations, as there is in any organization, whether it be a political party, whether it be a consumer group, that sort of thing. And I understand why people will be more active in one than the other, and that's fine. It could be for geographic, it could be for philosophical. There's nothing wrong with that. But at the end of the day, like you said, we're all fighting the same battle. We just choose to do it maybe a little bit differently. And I'm not ACB or NFB. I'm kind of both. I, I I have friends in ACB and I have friends in NFB and there are things that I like about both organizations. So, you know, I'm happy to go to both conventions. She's a little bit country and he's a little exactly, bit rock and roll. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you right. Know? right. Now, now, now that that whole appeasing thing is over, uh-huh. what else should we talk about? Just talking about the medical thing. And that, oh, yes. was, that was one thing that was actually brought up and I think it was revolution number eight this morning was about how ophthalmologists don't talk to newly blinded adults about rehabilitation and someone who was not against the resolution, but commented that they don't even do it for children who are low vision. You know, you're you're praised so much for seeing the letter that if you really can't see it, that you get to where you pretend to see it or you've memorized it and there's not. And that's, that's a problem that's been going on for so long that the medical, like Shanna was talking about her husband being a doctor, that they're taught to treat. And that's what doctors are trained to do. And I've, 
I remember when I was in grad school and we had a, and it was a fascinating course, it really was, on the medical aspects of disability. And these doctors and nurses or medical professionals would come in and talk about, I learned so much about epilepsy and and other things. And they told us about how they, quote, treated it and what the medical ramifications were for these disabilities and these health conditions. And but when we were talking to them about what sort of training, and this is like 1994, what sort of training do you guys get? And they don't. And a lot of it is because when you're in medical school, you are so busy. You know, you're, if you're an intern or a resident and um, there's so much that's being put into your head that they just they don't until they're out practicing. And and I do think that that's a deficit in our medical training, that they're not taught that, that a lot of times it's learned by the seat of your pants, and some of them are better at it than others. Obviously, I've had good experiences, and then I've had experiences that make me go, okay, but there's definitely a gap there. And even when they're having their conferences, a lot of times they say, well, it's so full of medical stuff that we don't have time to really do this. And I think a lot that's lacking because you'll see people, particularly ones who are very, very good neurosurgeons or oncologists who are very, very specialized, who are just at the top of their game. And they know how to deal with the issue, but not necessarily the patient. I think there are two issues. One is a broad one, which Mm -hmm. talks about the way the medical profession in general thinks about disabled people. And it's almost as if they can't get past the actual impairment yes. and look at you as an individual with dignity, uh, with, with capacity, despite an impairment. And that is quite common. You know, some of the most patronizing experiences I have had have come from the medical profession, oh, yeah. but I've also had some really great ones. Yeah, as well. I have too. Yeah. The second issue specifically relates to eye care professionals. Oh, yeah. And this is a perennial problem. And it's a really serious problem, and I'm certainly well aware of that from when I was the chair of the blindness organization here in New Zealand, because we were constantly trying to think of ways to change the narrative. But what often happens is somebody gets to the point where there's a diagnosis and the eye care professional says, there's nothing more I can do for you. You may as well go home. And and often it's even worse than that. It's you're going to be dependent for the rest of your yes. life. Don't expect to work. I've, I've heard of people being told this. I've heard of it as recently with a person yeah. in their 20s. Who's yeah. Told don't that don't expect you can have a job. Income and the ophthalmologist. You're going to go blind so you won't be able to work. Yes. Uh, you'll be dependent on your spouse. Um, th- these things are said, and that is outrageous. That's yes. particularly, I mean, hopefully with a little bit of assertiveness, you can overcome the problems of being patronized, even if you shouldn't have to. But when you're vulnerable mm-hmm. and you're wondering what sort of future might I have as a blind or low vision person, for ophthalmologists not to be trained to give that person a bit of hope and at least refer them on to an organization that can give them some perspective and some rehab, that is a terrible shortfall. Yeah. Well, in Massachusetts, and this may be true in other states, but the eye care professionals are required to register people or tell them and register them with um, services for the blind. Now, Mm. the person, it's their choice whether they want to take those services or not. But if the, if, and someone from Massachusetts, correct me if I'm wrong, if things have changed, but if they don't do it, they can't be fined. 
I understand I the UK may have a similar thing, mm -hmm. and I'd be interested to hear from listeners in the UK about this because quite frequently I hear the term from the UK registered blind. Yeah, and they're registered blind here too as well. Well, I think that the term has come from the UK, mm -hmm. but but in New Zealand, when people talk about being registered blind, it means being registered with blind and low vision yeah, NZ. Zealand, but yeah. as I understand it, in the UK, there is some sort of formal process that registers you as a blind person, and I believe that eye care professionals may have to do it. Yeah. I could be wrong about that, so I hope that people in the UK will let us know what it means when people talk about being registered blind in the UK. And I remember when I first moved to Massachusetts, I had to go see an eye doctor to get one of those lovely forms that you have to get if you want to get paratransit or uh, train cards, that sort of thing. And I was there and they, and I worked for the Mass Commission for the Blind. So I was there and they go, now I need to tell you about, are you registered? Are you, do you know about the rehab services here? I said, oh yeah, I work for them. <laughs> you yeah. know, but, but at least they were, were, and I went back and told my boss and he said, well, at least they're doing the job. That's right. So that was really refreshing. But another element of this though is the constant repetition involved in proving your blindness. Yes, that's a bit annoying. So I, get hearing aids at the moment, the funding is so stretched that it only comes up every six years now, which is very frustrating because technology moves on a lot in that time. But the last time I did this, I had to go through a process of once again proving that I am still as totally blind as I was since I was born. And mm -hmm. it's really frustrating. It and actually, is. you know, some things that I am involved with in my day job require this as well. And it's out of our control. I just wish there was a little bit more common sense applied in these sorts of things because it's just such a time waster. Yeah, uh, I, I, I doubt that I'm going to have a miracle before and on me. I'm sure there are much more deserving people of miracles than me. <laughs> Heathen that I am. <laughs> Anything else you wanted to cover this week? Um just talking about employment matters, mm. and Carolyn certainly brought up some some very good points. All three contributors yes, had some good yeah, points. Yeah, some yeah. very good points yeah. about employment. Some of you know, I just took over the role of work-ready advisor for Blind Love Vision New Zealand. I'm in my third week. And the concept behind this is getting people... But the opinions expressed in this podcast are, are not, those of body are, are, are of me and not yeah. of my yeah, employer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Thank I'll you. put that disclaimer in there. This is a universal issue. It's not a New Zealand issue. Work readiness and when are you ready to, to go out and getting a job is teamwork for anyone, not just, not just blind or visually impaired or disabled people for the sighted as well. Trust me, I've talked to HR people and they get resumes from sighted people and are uh, presumed sighted people. And they're like, did you even read the job ad? You know, you're not work ready at all. So what do you feel in your employment journey over the years helped you or didn't help you? when becoming work ready? What would you have liked to have done differently or had done differently? I know for myself, I never had the, and, and, and that's where it's so great now with technology, because I grew up in the old days when we, you know, didn't have the internet. And <laughs> <laughs> like my grandfather, you know, I walked uphill 20 miles. Yeah, when we got home. Anyway. When I was young, I didn't have access to really blind mentors. And I knew what I wanted to do, but I wasn't encouraged in that pursuit or didn't know people that were doing it. And the quote, professionals, education and otherwise, were, oh, well, you know, you need to do this, or this is what blind people do. And as we know, blind people do all kinds of things, all kinds of different jobs. And just having access to that and 
people who could talk to you about, hey, this is how I work as a lawyer. This is how I work as a journalist. This is how I work as a, you know, barista, you know, insert whatever career path you want in there. And that's something that I really wish I personally had had more, more access to is just, I remember when I went to the seeing eye for the first time, I met people that were doing all kinds of things. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, this is one thing that I am a bit of a broken record on. I think that exposure to adult blind mentors is so critical, especially for kids in their teenage years, because there's a lot going on. Yeah. And suddenly your sighted peers are starting to drive and do certain things, maybe some activities that you feel excluded from, and you do start to wonder, what's my future going to look like? And I think this is one of the areas where consumer organizations really can help. If you can meet people, they don't have to be something extraordinary, yeah, just just holding down a job, uh, maybe with a family or maybe not, just whatever, just making, as, as the NFP likes to say, living the life they want. Yeah, just <laughs> um, contributing but, in society, whatever way yeah, they want to contribute. You it, know? It, it makes you realize what's possible in a world where so often you're being surrounded by people who want to place limitations on you that are often completely unnecessary limitations. So I think the mentoring thing is really critical. Yeah, it is. And and there's no way that a professional can know everything about what you know. And we we and professionals should not be expected to know everything, but to at least have the resources where if someone is interested in exploring a job at Starbucks or starting their own business, then having people that can can help them then do that. And that's I think that in you know, really concentrated rehabilitation training, whether it be at a residential facility or just having a consistent rehabilitation training from someone is, is another thing, just getting you really and internships and volunteer work and that sort of thing so that you are able to build up your confidence because some people just aren't confident going out in the workplace. When I was a kid, I was really keen to work in radio. And I had a lot of people telling me why I couldn't do it. And then somebody came back from an overseas trip and said that they had met and heard a broadcaster in Singapore who was blind, and his name was Roger Cool. And even just knowing he existed doing commercial radio, the kind of thing I wanted to do, spurred me on. And then later, I had the privilege of working with Roger on ACB radio. So that was really amazing. And I was able to tell him the story that just knowing that he was out there inspired me to continue to give it a go. And uh, Roger died, sadly, far too young. And I, a few years ago now, I think, was contacted by his son, who was mm. learning a bit more about his life. And my name had come up in his research. And uh, so I was able to talk to him about his dad and what he meant to me. Yeah. Uh, it was amazing. And I learned the other day when I was at the professional journalism group at the NFB convention is that Elizabeth Campbell, who works for the Fort Worth Star-Telegraph, had been a journalist since the early 80s. Mm. And um, I wanted to be a journalist. I remember when I went to some sort of career fair we had at school. I, it's, this was when I started going to the School for the Blind. We moved to Tennessee, wanted to be a journalist. I was told there were no blind journalists. Yeah, but yet she yeah. was there, and I think there were a few others. And she started out, they didn't have, you know, the journalists didn't turn in their stories on typewriters. They used the old, what was it we called it, the TR. 80, well, the TRS 80. TRS 80, <laughs> which they were, they called the trash 80. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how she turned in her stuff, you know, to the, to her editors and, you know, didn't know she existed. 
Yeah, I, I know. Yeah. That, that's why mentoring is so, yeah. um, so important. Anyway, well, thank you for another great Bonnie Bulletin. And we'll look forward to, of course, the Bonnie Bulletin continuing on the podcast. And you can join the increasing throng. I must admit you are getting an increasing throng of people who listen to you on your Studio 70 show, uh, having a wee chat and playing lots of good 70s tunes weekdays at 11 a.m. and p.m. Eastern Time on Mushroom FM. Cool. Tremendous. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin at